We're back, baby. Happy New Year. You want to know more, more, more about me? I'm the one who's watching the Griffin family. I'm the one that's quoting Stewie. If you say the word Brian. Hey, hey, hey. Can't you see I watch it by the way that I say mama? Yeah. Don't test me on my Seth MacFarlane knowledge. Cause I'll kick your ass and take your ass to class and back again. Tangled up with Pete. That's it. I know. As as opposed to last week where it was just, when is this gonna stop? (laughs) Everyone was (laughs) pissed off. This one is, you know, all right, less than a minute of song parody, great. Everyone who likes the song parodies, love it. We got it, and everyone who hates it, great. It was over in less than a minute. I don't have to KYS this time, Mm -hmm. so very, very cool. Um, Mason. Hey. We haven't podcasted since last year. <laughs> what? what? Holy shit. Holy fuck. I can't wait to tweet that later. Yeah. That's always my favorite thing to do on New Year's Eve when you're with your friends. Is at like 1258, you just look to each other and be like, well, see you next year. And then you close your eyes and count down to one on New Year's, say happy New Year's, and then you see your friends in the next year. It's kind of a magic trick, kind of funny, yeah, kind of epic is. that way. I mean, time uh, isn't real. If 2020 taught us anything, it's that time isn't real. But 2021, time's going to be real again, so buckle the fuck up, everyone. It's a matter of... The, the song 2021 by Vampire Weekend? I don't know it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You know, that's a... That is a... Um, a they, they sample friend of the show Haru Omi Hasono on that song, actually. No shit. Something off Phil Harmony or something else? No, something else. I, it's, I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's, um, it is – Ezra apparently is a big uh, Haru Omi Hasono fan and sampled that for that. Ezra's kind of interesting. I had never really heard him speak uh, outside of Vampire Weekend, but he was a guest on uh, – I can't remember if it was a free ep – or a premium ep of Yeah But Still recently that I listened to. And he's like one of the most return. He might be the most returning guest in YBS history. But he's cool. He seems like a very chill guy. Someone that like seems like he'd be a lot of fun to hang out with. And for what if you hate Vampire Weekend, brother, I don't know if you're looking hard. Not you specifically, Mason. But like if your listener hates Vampire Weekend, I don't know if you're looking hard enough. Because they kind of rock, I think. Um, God. <laughs> oh, dude, shut up. I just thought about Cousin Luke the other day, actually, yeah. weirdly enough. Uh, so shout out to, shout out to, shout out to Cousin Luke, who is sort of our unofficial mascot for the show in our first sort of season of this when everyone was still in LA and there was yeah. not a, you know, global sweeping pandemic to be had. Mason's moving me around the screen right now because I'm looking at him on his phone. So I just got to see Mason's bookshelf for the first time in my whole life. Bit of magic here. Zoom is not running on my computer because it has made my computer crash, I think, the last literally five times that we've recorded an episode. So 
Noah's coming through my phone. My Bluetooth speakers headset uh, headphones died, so I can't listen to Noah talk. He's just coming through. I'm just making sure that it's not coming through on the mic here. But you know what? That's my job to figure out later. In any case, we're back. The boys are back. It's 2021, and we are finish. We are on our second half of our year-end wrap-up for 2020. Yes, I know we wanted to leave everything behind. We wanted to put out the dumpster fire of the year that was 2020, but we got some stuff we got to talk. We want to talk about, and I can't remember if we alluded to it in the lost portion of this episode of the previous episode, or if we actually did around get around to mentioning it, but. We're doing a little bit something different um, for our second year-end wrap-up here. So when it was getting close to the end of the year, Noe was like, what do you want to do? Do you want to talk about movies? And I was like, "Uh, I watched enough movies, but not enough to feel like I have a cohesive top 10 list. And what we came up with was we were going to just do our top 10 favorite things from the year prior, 2020, which we I hope you have all listened to. And then our solution for what else to do with this year was to do the top 10 favorite new-to-me movies um, for the year of 2020. So top 10 favorite movies that were new to both of us and that we didn't cover on the show. That was kind of the only um, other criteria, was it had to be a new watch to us this year and that we couldn't have brought it on the show prior. So... Um, you know, we won't be talking about, uh, you know, click won't be talking. <laughs> really? That is interesting that we won't be talking about click. Uh, give me about 40 seconds to rewrite my whole list real quick, Mason. Cause I think click was every single one of them. Just kidding. Click's one of my favorite movies. So of course I saw it before this year, Mason. But couldn't bring it on because we brought it on. I brought it on the show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you want to just get into it at this point? I think yeah. I mean, I think you know, if you listen to our last episode, uh, we had to, we had to, we had to Frankenstein some things together. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're doing two parts of this year and wrap up. You know, 2020 was a weird year uh, in the sense that Mason and I probably would have gone to the theater a lot. Uh, had 2020 not been a thing. Going to the movies is one of my favorite things to do in the entire world. I like it so much that I want to make them. <laughs> and I want other people to go into the theater, and I want other people to see the movies that I make uh, as well one day, hopefully. That's one of the things that I hope to do uh, in my life. And so last year, it was a very special circumstance because we were going into a new decade. We were going from 2019 to 2020. And so not only were we able to talk about our favorite movies of 2019, we were able to talk about our favorite movies of the decade. And that was sort of a special sort of instance that doesn't come that literally only comes around every 10 years. Literally every 10 years. Literally. Like Chris Traeger, literally 10 years because everyone loves Parks and Rec. So I had to make that reference. That was cringe as fuck. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, Parks and Rec, very cool. That was awesome. Through um, Parks and Rec fans, just like their antennas going up. Like, another podcast where they mention Parks and Rec? Um, and of course, Chris Traeger, who's everyone's fucking favorite, you know, character on that show. Yes, the Rob Lowe character, the person that people don't like in real life of most of the cast. Him and Chris Pratt are probably the most, like, hated members of the, like, cast of Parks and Rec at this point. reputation outside of that show that those guys are playing those two characters 
But so Mason and I were able to do 2019 movies last year and end of decade stuff. And I liked doing that. It was nice to sort of be able to split it up into two parts. And I wanted to continue that tradition, I guess, for lack of a better term. And I'm like, well, 2020 was fucked. And so we didn't get to go to the movies hardly at all. But we watched a lot of movies at home. We watched a lot of things for the first time. And so these are the top 10 new to us watches. I will be very surprised, Mason. If we have any crossover on this list, would you agree? Surprised just because I don't know what's going to end up. The, the nice thing about this list is that it's probably going to be surprises on both sides. You know, sure. Um, there's going to be stuff that I haven't seen likely stuff that you haven't seen likely. Um, this was the more difficult list of the two for me to put together just because I watched so many new movies this year and I ended up liking or loving most of them. But I have a list of 10 here that I think that if folks haven't seen it, um, should go on their list. Mason, before we actually dive into the list, we literally almost didn't do it this time, but I believe you have an email to read, right? forgot to do this for the last episode and it worked out because it would have definitely been lost to time and you know what i hate redoing bits (laughs) same (laughs) um but friend of the show fast past guest and um uh fuckabee group chat member rocky pajarito emailed us at everybody wants to the number two get on the list at gmail.com and if you send us an email we will read it on the show and rocky wrote in with this Subject, the subject, hey guys, um, do you know what the stats homework was this week? Also, who are your dream guests? Sent from my very big and veiny iPhone. So. All right. So let me get that. Let me make something clear. Rocky, once again, didn't do the stats homework. So he's being a little bitch and asking us the night before. Classic Rocky move, kind of a huge piece of shit in that regard. But also he's asking us who our dream guests are. That's the that's the part two, right? That is the part two, yes. Um I will just say, Rocky, if it comes down to it, you can just cheat off me, man. Um, you know, I hope that, you know, Mr. McGregor isn't listening to this podcast. I don't think he would, but if you gotta just cheat off me this one time, you can take my notes, dude. There's um, a good but- chance that we that he will hear it because we're recording this during free period <laughs> at school, even though there's a global pandemic happening. So Mr. McGregor might end up hearing this uh, only because he's within earshot. So right, who knows? right. Who is a dream guest of yours, though, Mason? I guess that's kind of an interesting question because this is not the sh- this is not the show where I feel like you could just bring in anyone. I think that you like a guest has to have a certain background, you know. Give Noah the keys to the to the Gmail. I've had a little more time to think about this than he has, and I've settled on mine. Do you have somebody, or would you like me just to go no, off go on first. mine while you kind of get your yourself together, your your go, idea together? Go first. I need that. Yeah. Yeah. So I had um, Rocky sent this, and I was like, "This is a great question. Who would I want to get on?" And the person I kind of settled on is someone who would be, uh, who's, who, since we're an underrated media, primarily music and movies podcast, I'm like, who's somebody whose opinion I want to hear about um, an album and a movie that they think is underrated? And the person I, I settled on is former show um, topic, uh, St. Vincent, because she's also a uh, director or has at least been like floating around a couple projects. Um, I like her music. I'd be interested to hear like, 
uh, like if she has a favorite underrated, uh, like a Bowie, or if she wants to bring on like a John Cale album or something, like sure. people that I know who are her influences, and just so she could go off on that, and also like what movie she likes to sit down and give her time to. Uh, and I just think that she'd be a fun guest. I think she's fun, and I like her a lot. So um, St. Vincent would probably be mine. Uh, who do you have, Chef? So I'm going to break this down. Again, I have not had – this is, like, purely off the cuff. This is purely, like, gut reaction here. Mm-hmm. The number one dream guest that I would love to get on this pod – is Twitter user Drill. I would love if Drill came on this podcast. I'm not kidding. He... (laughs) On our podcast? Drill is one of my favorite writers. He is a brilliant writer, I think. No, whoever he is, you know, yeah. he was doxxed, I think, at one point, And everyone just kind of turned a blind eye and like said, fuck you to the person who doxxed uh, him. And I've forgotten it. That's how much I don't want to know what Drill's real name is. Hell yeah. I think that was pre me coming on Twitter. And so that was 26. 26- if-, if I remember correctly, that was 2016. Well, that would have been the last time I was on Twitter. So it was probably 2016. All right, I was not on Twitter at that point. I joined Twitter in summer of 2017. Um, I would love to get him on. I think he's a very interesting person, and I would love to know what he thinks, whether he wants to come on and genuinely talk about something or not, or he wants to bring on, like, ratatatoing or whatever it is called, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, like, talk about that. I would be absolutely fascinated to hear what he has to say. Uh, that's the first person that came to mind. I would love to get someone like... Bob Odenkirk as well. Like, Bob Odenkirk, I think someone who's, like, very, like, multidisciplinary in the sense that, like, they do TV, they do movies, they write, you know, they produce things, you know. So, someone like that. <laughs> yeah, someone is someone who's really got their hands on a lot of pies, like Barack Obama. Uh, a so, person with a lot of interesting media opinions, Barack Obama. A person that, yeah. a person that based off of the list that he posts at the end of the year, you know, genuinely enjoys listening to music and watching movies. Um, that's going to yeah, be up some, to the listener to decide if I'm uh, sincere about that or not. Well, I'm going to tell them that you're not sincere. That's what I'm going to say <laughs> um, So, yeah, I would say Drill. And someone like Bob Odenkirk, again, I need I wouldn't really need more time to really give that like a like a real solid answer, but like Drill is the first person that comes to mind. Someone who like you really wouldn't expect I'm like not a movie. I'm person. honestly a little surprised you didn't say like Tim Heidecker, honestly. He was someone in my mind as well. Like Tim would be an interesting person, but like Drill is so mysterious and it's like what does Drill actually like think about things, you know, that like yeah. I would love to get him on. He's just, you know, He's a very he's a he's a fucking enigma to me, and I think he's one of the funniest people out there. You know, constantly makes me laugh. I sent you Mason, you know, as a little belated birthday present. I sent you his "Get Rich and Become God" uh, ebook, uh, and I don't know if you've had time to flip through that, but that is I'm gut laughing reading that fucking book. I am sitting in my fucking seat that I'm in right now, just having a ball reading that. Gotcha. Yeah, I have not had a chance to flip through it, but I am going to have, well, by the time this episode has come out, I will have had a little break from work, um, and maybe I'll flip through it when I have the time uh, during that. So uh, by the time this particular episode comes out, because we are recording this um, on Veterans Day, 
Um, <laughs> Veterans Day 2018 is when we're recording yes, yes, yes. this episode. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, Therocky, thank you very much for the email. And again, if you want to send us an email, everybody wants to, the number two, get on the list at gmail.com. Is that in the link tree, Mason? Putting it just in the straight up notes. Who knows? Nice. Whatever. <laughs> Great. I love that. Um, but yeah, I think we should actually get, I think we should, I think we should actually get into the list now. And I think since I went, second on the last app. I think I need to go first this time. So are you ready to hear my honorable menchies? Yes, you should. Okay. These are the top 10 favorite movies that I watched for the first time in 2020. But before we get to that, I got to give you five honorable mentions. All of these movies, full recommends, even the honorable mentions. Number 15, Coming in at number 15 is actually a movie that we mentioned on our episode with Sienna Kresge. It is a Paul Verhoeven movie. It is from 1987. It is RoboCop. Watch that for the first time this year. Love me some action sci-fi. Think it's one of my favorite like genres to like put together. And uh, this movie fucking slaps to high heaven. Great movie. Great satire. Prescience on all fronts. Just an amazingly well-made movie that is fun to watch and has a great message as well. So that's my number 15, RoboCop. You've seen that, right, Mason? Hell yeah. Number 14, the movie that I watched penultimately in theaters. Not the last movie that I watched in theaters, which was, I believe, I think we said it on the last episode, but the last movie I watched in theaters in 2020 was The Way Back, directed yes. by Gavin O'Connor, starring Ben Affleck. But the penultimate movie that I watched in theaters was a treat movie in a sense that it's been hard to see prior to this year, and it came out at the time where it was just before the pandemic hit, where if you saw it, you got to see it, and if you didn't get to see it this way, who knows when you'll get to see it this way going forward. 1985's Come and See. I got to see Come and See on the big screen at the Egyptian Theater with friends, and one of them being past guests of the show, Jack Campisi and Paolo. I got to go see that movie with them at the Egyptian literally mere days before shutdown. I want to say that that was like maybe a week before, you know, like everything started to shut down and shit really started to hit the fan. So never going to watch that movie again. Uh, and I'm really glad that I got to see it on the big screen because that is how that movie deserves to be seen. It is brutal. Do something fun after you watch that. So that's number 14 for me. Have you seen that Mason or is that still on your list? But I don't think that it was in Chicago pre-pandemic. And if it was, it was when I was living in the suburbs with my folks still. And it was a little bit of a hassle for me to get downtown. So I have not seen Come and See. I know it's a very punishing movie. So it's, while it's on my list, it is, um, I'm going to need to have a loved one with me or somebody or some other sort of emotional support around with me so I can see that movie once and then never again. Yeah. Once, never again, and then you go to sleep. Actually, just kidding. You do something fun afterwards because it is fucking brutal. Uh, I don't think I talked. Jack Capallo and I just sort of walked out of the theater and we were like, all right, bye. <laughs> like, it was just sort of just like a, okay, let's go home. Let's just fucking go home. Yeah. Number 13, Mary and Max. I believe that is from 2009. It's an animated film. 
by a New Zealander. He's either Australian or New Zealand. I can't remember. Adam Elliott. He's got a great short film that I love. Uh, can't remember the name of it off the top of my head at the moment. But he's got a great short film uh, about someone's either grandfather or uncle. And it's got a bunch of little wisdom in it that I love. And once I saw that, I was like, what else has this guy done? And he did Marion Max. And Marion Max came out in the late 2000s. Also, actually, whether you believe me or not, a very depressing film. Uh, doesn't shy away from harsh emotions. Doesn't shy away from brutal honesty. Uh, in both the characters, Philip Seymour Hoffman does the voice of Max, and Tony Collette does the voice of Mary. Mary is a little girl, and you get to see her grow up, and Max is an older man, and you sort of get to see him toward the end phases of his life. And it is very sad, very depressing, but ultimately a very warm film. And it was able to pull off both in a very impressive way. So that's my number 13. Definitely worth one watch at least. Probably a movie I'll also never watch again, and if I do... Uh, hold on to your fucking hat. Number 12. Have you seen Mary and Max? You will probably really like it, I think. Uh, number 12. She was big this year. I don't know how many people got to see her movie, again, because she had a movie come out in 2020. I happened to see it. Not going to say the means of which I was I acquired the movie to see it. Uh, but the movie that came out this year that she did was good. But I don't think it's as good as me and you and everyone we know by Miranda July. That movie surprised the shit out of me. I did not think I was going to like it as much as I did. I thought it was going to be an indie cork fest. I thought it was going to get by on sort of like, you know, oh, that's, I just, that made me feel so like special. Like I thought it was going to be like one of those, you know? And it just hits such a particular nerve as far as, digital loneliness is concerned. And the movie came out in the mid-2000s as well. Really impressive. Really impressive. I think it was a debut feature as well, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. uh, gotta just be... It was tough almost. I really wanted to include it on a certain level on this list. Not as much as I wanted to include my number 11, but Me, You, and Everybody Know hits such a specific nerve, does such a great job. It really has that literary quality that some movies are able to capture and some movies aren't. Miranda July herself is a visual artist and a short story writer outside of being a filmmaker as well. She is supremely talented, and I almost wrote her off because I thought this movie was just going to be quirky, McQuirker, quirky, mm. and there was going to be like a, you know, it was going to remind me of like a girl that I liked in high school who was like quirky and I'm quirky, and I'm like, whatever, shut the fuck up, you know? Uh, but loved me, you, and everyone we know. Big recommend. And my number 11, which at one time was my number 10, and I ultimately had to move it back to number 11 because I think it's only because I've seen it too recently for me to fully say this is going to be my number 10. But my number 11, and this kind of goes in conjunction with the series as well, my number 11 is End of Evangelion, which is the final wrap-up last two episodes done in an alternate style to the Neon Genesis Evangelion anime series from the late 90s. Uh... I don't even know how to describe it. It is just a fucking visceral experience. It is absolutely hard to watch. It is crushing, but it is so tender and so beautiful at the same time. So uh, watch the entire series. Watch the last two eps. Then watch End of Evangelion because it's the alternate styling of the last two eps, a different ending to the series, a reimagining. And there's moments in that movie that absolutely took my breath away and I have never seen anyone come close to replicating some of the stuff that happens in End of Evangelion. So that is my number 11. That is my last honorable mention. I guess I forgot to ask you, Mason. Have you seen either me, you, and everyone we know or End of Evangelion? 
2021. Wow. All right. I just gave you some. I just gave you some homework. You did. I'm you know, a teacher. I've started and gotten almost. I've gotten over midway through Neon Genesis Evangelion, and I've never been able to finish it for whatever reason, just because it is sure. kind of a you know a punishing show. Um, and so I've never seen the wrap up movies or anything after that point. So. Uh, and I've also never seen Me and You and Everyone We Know, even though I know that it is um, probably something that would uh, at least tickle t- tickle my fancy. But I've never given it uh, the, the hour and however long it is time. So great list, great things uh, for folks to check out if they haven't already. I have six honorable mentions, um, not kind, uh, nothing kind of ranked here, but just six movies that I watched this year um, that just couldn't quite find their place on the list, but I needed to shout out. Uh, we got close up, close up the Abbas Kiarostami movie. Oh, movie's awesome. Movie fucking movie. rocks. Um, that's a movie whose reputation ahead of time you're like, is this really gonna be as good as it is? And yes, it is. It's better. Um, other uh, on that same tip, when Harry met Sally, I saw that movie oh. for the first time this year. Another fucking banger, Mason. Such a Holy treat. Shit. Such a treat. So good. Such a treat. Uh, we have the Agnes Varda movie. Uh, it's the English translation is happiness. It's in, like Le Bonheur or something. I don't know. It's about a guy who um, has an affair with a woman and everything works out well for him in the end. It's very, it's, I, I, it's, it's uh, really good. I liked it a lot. Um, also coming up, we got the Todd Haynes movie Safe, which was, okay. uh, yeah, never saw it. It's been on my mind this year just because, you know, we're living uh, through a pandemic and it's a movie about being sick um yep. and kind of social sickness almost in a way you know that was uh when i watched it i think maybe march or april was just kind of like oh yeah 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 this is exactly what's happening right now i love it um good la movie good uh, juju moore is incredible in it um give that one the time if you haven't already it's it's weird it's it's specific it's very it's very um very good um and then coming in these would probably be my number uh 12 and 11 then honestly uh, the movie Candyman, which I hadn't seen before, oh, the original okay. Candyman, um, uh, watched it on a Netflix party with my friend Olivia and had a blast. Great Chicago movie. Um, and I guess my number 11, this is the one that I kind of danced between my number 10 and number 11, keeping on or off. Uh, but it's the Julie Dash movie, Daughters of the Dust. Uh, okay. It's about something of a family reunion of, um, in South Carolina at the end of uh, an all-black family uh at the end of uh in 1890 something or other i think um to my memory it's not a movie where uh it's a movie that i just sort of like um uh uh bathed in almost like uh bathed in its sort of atmosphere uh and its spirituality even if i couldn't tell you exactly what was happening in that movie um I, it's it's really a movie that you just kind of have to give your years uh, I say this a lot but you have to kind of give your time to it and just kind of accept going into it that you might not understand a hundred percent what's going on um but I was blown away by it I was incredibly moved by it um and uh yeah so those are my uh honorable mentions so Noah let's kick it off what is your number 10 favorite new to me of 2020 damn uh, here we fucking go, ladies and gentlemen and folks of all ages. My number 10 favorite first watch of 2020 is another punishing watch. Uh, but it's a director that we've talked about before on this show, and you and I have an equal fondness for. I don't know if you've seen this one by her, actually. 
I don't know if you've seen this one by her, but I she, she doesn't have a lot of movies, and so I'm making my way through them. And the only one I have left to see is Morvern Caller because I checked out We Need to Talk About Kevin for the first time <laughs> this year. Mason, have you seen We Need to Talk About Kevin before? Which was, uh, they mentioned, John C. Riley mentions Donald Trump in that movie, and in 2016, it was very funny. Um, but no, We that? Need to Talk About Kevin Rocks. I love that movie. What part does he mention Donald Trump in? I can't remember. It's like, at some point, um, it's really like if you're not paying too much attention to it or if Donald Trump isn't on your mind, you wouldn't notice it. But he's like, Kevin, I forget exactly what the context is. It's like breakfast early one morning. And uh, John C. Riley says, like, uh, we got a real Donald Trump. On, like, you're turning into a real Donald Trump or something. Oh, you know? gotcha. Sure. Okay. It was. It's a. It's a comment toward Kevin the Sun, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I do actually vaguely remember that now. Uh, but I love Lynn Ramsey. I watched Ratcatcher in college. That was my first. I think that was my first experience with her because Barry Jenkins spoke so highly of her in here in here in his Criterion Closet video that I'm like, damn, I need to check Lynn Ramsey out. So I did check her out and I checked out Ratcatcher and it absolutely blew me away and I could absolutely see the influence from her to him in moonlight and so then i checked out you in or not you and me, everyone we know you were never really here uh in theaters at the irvine theater that showed some of the more arty movies in orange county while i was in college and i was completely fucking blown away by that movie one of my favorite movies uh to come out in 2018 and so i had to check out we need to talk about kevin it was sort of been on my mind i had seen that it was streaming on hulu at the time and i was like here we go, baby. I'm about to. I'm about to really feel something gnarly for the next two hours. And brother, I'm still kind of feeling gnarly from this one because, uh, once again, I think this is a movie you watch one time, and that is all you really need from it. It's about a woman looking back on the relationship with her son who has committed an atrocity has committed a crime. And it really has, you know, it, it really begs the question of how much of us is nature and how much of us is nurture. Yeah. And you really just get to see, uh, Tilda Swinton who plays the mother in this movie, whose perspective you're from absolutely just eat herself up about what's happened. And it's done in a very impressionistic style that she's really just happened to fucking nail to in such an incredible way. Uh, I don't want to say really anything plot wise too much because it really just is one of those that you have to experience for yourself to get the full effect. I feel like, but it's sickening to watch Mason. This is a, this is an absolutely gnarly watch. It is, yeah. It's a gnarly movie. It's very, um, uh, it's, Lynn Ramsey's artistry is on full display there. I, when I think about that movie, all I think about is how well she uses the color red throughout the entire thing. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I love that movie. That one is a big old um, recommendo for me also. Um, all right. So my number 10 then. And yep. uh, this is going to make you mad. But okay. I have to put Can't it on wait. here. Great. It's David Fincher's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Why does that make me mad? Have you seen that? Yeah, a long time ago, though. Oh, okay. I don't know. I thought that you had a thing against that movie. But, no. Uh, I don't know. I watched that movie on the recommendation of friends of the show, um, Ryan Kenny and Sonny Dion Jr. Both of them, they said that it was their favorite uh, David Fincher movie. And I'm like, well, these are two guys whose tastes more or less align with mine. So I think I got to really check this out now. 
Uh, and then it quickly rocketed to the top of my David Fincher list. It's so atypical from the rest of his filmography um, that it's, it's it's extremely notable. And I think it's kind of a um, – I don't want to say Rosetta Stone, but it's – if you watch – if you use that movie as the sort of um, – I guess Rosetta Stone. I don't know. If you watch that movie, it really kind of unlocks his filmography in a way, I think. Um I, like I said in my in the 2020 wrap-up episode, I'm a sucker for movies about history. I'm a sucker for um, David Fincher. I'm a sucker for, um, you know, just kind of like big, I think, like swings that like really hit and just like knock it out of the park. And this is a grand slam for me. Yeah, Benjamin Button looks kind of weird, um, but it's ultimately a fantasy kind of, or like a magic realism kind of thing, so I can kind of forgive it. And for its time, the technology that was available, um, it's it's not super obnoxious. Um, and I also just like that he's... Um, uh, I don't know. I was not expecting a David Fincher movie to move me emotionally in the way that that did. And that's why it's kind of up at the top uh, for me because it's like, you know, you think about his movies and he has such a, uh, a precise and tactician's mind and he's applying it to a story of a just a regular guy who has one extraordinary thing about him. Um, just physically, like, he has this physically extraordinary thing about him, like, he ages backwards, but he has just, like, sure. a regular kind of life, um, and I think that that movie in, uh, or that idea in, in, in a movie is incredibly, um, uh, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's something that I like to see. If, if a movie's about that, then I, um, am going to probably err on the side of liking it more than not. And you know what? Since last time this came up on the podcast, you mentioned Forrest Gump, and it got me a little hot under the collar. But I think it's by the same screenwriter. I think I would want to give Forrest Gump the movie another shot, just because it's been so long since I haven't. I've seen it all the way through, and I'm basing my like kind of reaction to it off of other people's reaction to it. I don't think I have an honest yeah. sort of opinion on that movie, really. So yeah, that's always a smart way to form your opinions, is what yeah, 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 about exactly. Something. I'm leaving that behind in 2020. Um, but I don't know. I think that it's some, a movie that um, folks should give a fair shake to. Um, and uh, if you don't like it, don't tell me. <laughs> or do. Honestly, I don't care. I'm an adult. You are an adult, and you're adult as far as I am concerned. Uh, Mason, I, it's been so long since I've seen this movie. I barely remember anything that happens in it, to be totally honest with you. Uh, I watched it in high school, uh, and I remember really liking it, though. I remember really, really liking it in high school, being like, wow, this is a very good movie. I don't understand hate that like comes towards this movie in any way, shape, or form. That being said... That was like seven or eight years ago now at this point. That was like early high school. It was probably a sophomore or a junior in high school at that point. So don't really have a lot to say about it in, its, in, in my current state of things. Uh, now that I'm 24 years old, Mason, as this episode is dropping. <laughs> it's birthday, folks. Yeah, literally my day of birth. Now we're going to have Noe's fucking 24th birthday, the day that this drops. We are recording this episode and last week's episode back-to-back on the 20th of December so that we can spend the weeks leading up to 2021 with our loved ones, not looking at each other through a screen for once. Um, But yeah, 
it's my birthday today. Anyway, I'm 24 years old now that this drops, and that freaks me the fuck out. But yeah. uh, both ti- both at number 10, we have kind of longer titles yeah. in our yeah. in our midst. Curious Case. Is it The Curious Case, or is it Curious Case? I believe it is The Curious Case. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button at 6. We need to talk about Kevin. Both six-letter titles in our number this? 10 slot. Look at that. How about this? Anything else, or are we good to move on? Um... No, let's go on. Let's move on. Number nine. Mason, if this is in your top ten, I will I will shit a brick <laughs> if this is in your top ten. Just because When it's... you see this, you'll shit a brick. When you hear this podcast, you'll see it and you'll shit a brick. <laughs> yeah, what if I just I... put the brown noise underneath this entire <laughs> The fucking brown note. What is that from? How do you, is that that's just a South thing Park. kids I'm pretty know sure about? I, I think it might be a real life thing, but I know for sure they talked about it on South Park. Hell yeah. Love that. Uh, my number nine. Last time we you heard my voice, if you listened to the last episode, at number six, I believe, I talked about Murder on Middle Beach, which was a Fed recommendation. My good friend Fed, who I love. Uh, number nine on this list is also a Fed recommendation so fed showing up on both lists sort of vicariously through the list themselves and this is actually not a feature film mason this is a short film this is a longer short film uh it's 47 minutes long i believe it can be found on youtube and i think i even recommended it at the end of one of our most recent episodes but this is called florida man it is a short doc mm-hmm. directed by Chris Dunn, Dune, not 100% sure it's D-U-N-N-E. could be Dune like Griffin Dune, or it could be Dunn like Nick and Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. Uh, who knows? I don't I th- know. I'm pretty but, sure that Griffin, it's Griffin Dunn, but it's not important right now Any in any case. <laughs> great. We're, we're going to call him Chris Dunn. Uh, this is a documentary where you are following around different people in Florida and you're just getting talking head interviews with them, and you get to see so much humanity from people who on first look and first impression you probably would write off as being stupid or not worth your time because they look unintelligent and they look uninformed, but they give. But this filmmaker and this doc, very simple, very straightforward doc, give these people a platform to talk, and whatever they ask them, before the camera started rolling or whatever they asked them that isn't, you know, showing up, whatever those questions were, you get some pretty amazing responses from these people. And it's 47 minutes long. It's free on YouTube to watch on the YouTube channel Very Ape, which has a bunch of other really awesome shorter docs on there as well. Uh, and this is absolutely just worth your time. This is just an absolute treat. It is inspiring in a lot of ways. You know, you have a, you have a certain perception of what a person might say or what a person might sound like. And then you hear them actually talk, and they might not say it in the way that you would say it, but they're saying more or less something that you can agree on. And at a time where, you know, we as a country are very divided, you know, on a lot of different things, and you would think that maybe some of these people in these in these movies, you might be divided on certain ideas that they might have, they really surprise you, you know? And so I thought it was a very, very people-affirming, very life-affirming watch was very surprised by how moved I was by this. Fed really fucking knocked it out of the park once again. So, Florida Man uh, on YouTube, directed by Chris Dunn. Yeah, did you actually check this out or no? I I wouldn't be surprised if you did. No, I'm not surprised. It's it's yeah. it's like, why would you? Unless 
fed told you to watch <laughs> you know it's like just like one of those you know but i really would like just check it out like it just is that good and it's easy to find seen either of these but based off of the description and what i know of both of them it sounds like it would make a good double feature with the errol morris documentary gates of heaven yes there actually is an errol morris short called vernon florida and it basically is yeah. gates of heaven is like the pet cemetery one you know and Vernon, Florida is like the short that came out, I want to say, maybe two years after. It actually is extremely similar to that one. And maybe he saw Vernon, Florida and was like, I'm going to do my own version of that, you know, updated for, you know, 20 years later or whatever, or 40 years later, maybe even at a certain point. So, um, but definitely check it out. There's not really a whole lot much more to say about it, to be honest with you. Great. My number nine is Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Um, it was on Netflix around June when all of the – George Floyd protests and things were happening, and I was able to chunk out three hours of my time, I think maybe even three and a half hours of my time, to just kind of watch this uh, Titanic motion picture. Um, have you seen Malcolm X? No, you caught me slipping. Sorry, I was adjusting my headphones. But no, I have not seen uh, Malcolm X. It's really, um, it's, I don't quite know what my reputation or my relationship with that particular movie was ahead of time, but I just know that Malcolm X himself is a particular, or Malcolm Shabazz, is, I think his name was when he died, was a particularly polarizing figure just in American um, culture. And this is a very good movie that makes a case for him being a, um, it just makes the case for his life being sort of a, another prism that you can just sort of put through put you can view american life through the, if you i don't know what i'm trying to say it's a great american movie um it came out the year after do the right thing and one of my favorite things about the movie do the right thing is the last like kind of minute where they have the competing quotes about violence from martin luther king and mart and malcolm x and then it ends on the picture of them shaking hands and absolutely yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that, like, Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X are kind of, they're kind of in conversation with each other, and I think after seeing Malcolm X, you can't talk about one completely without the other, where Do the Right Thing is about, like, sort of American life um, and, uh, through, uh, you know, this, this city, this one city block in Brooklyn, and um, Malcolm X is about American life, particularly black American life, through... Um, the life of Malcolm X. Um, it's also one of the things where you watch and you're like, how is Denzel? Like it's, it's incredible that Denzel Washington did not get the Oscar for that movie. I think he lost to, to um, Al Pacino for scent of a woman that year. Right. Yeah. And you just watch it and you're like, this is one of the greatest performances in a motion picture that I think I've ever seen through. Cause you're following him through, his, basically his entire life, if not like 40 years or 20 years or something, and how he um, approaches this man at the different stages of his um, development into who he becomes. Um, it's really striking. It's really remarkable. It's, it's again, something that, like, you should chunk out a time, uh, the time to see it if you haven't already. Um, it's incredibly moving. It's incredibly um, well done. And even though it is over three hours, it moves past so quickly. Um, it's, it's it's striking. It's inspiring. Um, I, I loved it. That's all I got to say. 
Got to give you a quick little fact check. Malcolm X actually came out three years after Do the Right Thing. Oh, came my, out in my bad, my bad. Okay, so there, there was actually a movie in between. But still, I think that those two films of Spike Lee's are actually in somewhat of a conversation with each other. Um, I believe it. I mean, like you said, the ending of Do the Right Thing, you know, one of the greatest endings of all time. Mm-hmm. Legitimately, like, one of the greatest endings of all time in a way makes the movie what it is. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, it raises questions and then forces you to think about those questions and doesn't let you off the hook. Mm-hmm. You know, it really forces you to think about these two opposite ideologies as far as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X are concerned. I haven't checked it. I have not checked out Malcolm X specifically yet. Excited to one day dig into it. That is definitely on my list, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, am I good to move on to my number eight? I would love it if you moved on to your number eight. All right, Mason. Check the chickadee, chickadee. Check this out. I, <laughs> I had not had a five star movie that I had watched. I had not given it five stars on Letterboxd all year until I watched this movie. It no longer sits at five stars. All the movies that I'm talking about today have sitting at four and a half stars, I believe, uh, that are on the actual list itself. Mm. But there was a time where I did give this movie five stars, and it happened to be in conjunction with the night that I stopped the movie halfway through to go listen to the fucking the Hive album music part again. Three. Yeah, it was literally like I took a break halfway through this movie, and it's not even a particularly long movie, to go listen to Women in Music Part 3, and I had a full body high, partly from Women in Music Part 3, but also because of this movie, and I... This movie gets a little... This movie, I don't think it's enough love, at least the people I'm following on Letterboxd. And maybe I was just in the right mindset and the right mood to watch this movie at the time. And I love this movie, Mason. I love this movie. It is 1951's An American in Paris. Oh, boy. Okay. This movie is just so beautiful. It's just so beautiful to look at. It's so nice. The colors are incredible. The like the set design is absolutely impeccable. The dancing and the singing is just so fun. The story is not that interesting ultimately, but that's not why you're watching the movie. The last yeah. 20 25 minutes of this movie, one of the greatest things I've ever seen in a movie. Absolute like it's not surrealism, but it's like a dream sequence. It's like a daydreaming thing, like a guy like thinking about like what could be happening. And it's done in such an expressionistic way. No dialogue, all music, all dancing, all camera work, all blocking. It's fucking phenomenal. Gene Kelly is so goddamn good God, in this It movie, must have dude. been really cool to like clock out of your job at like the factory or something in the 50s and then just go down the street and see a Gene Kelly movie. Yes. We don't have, like, a Gene <laughs> Kelly anymore, you know? I guess Channing Tatum's probably the closest that we have in, in terms of just physique and just, like, talent. But, man, I think – I hope that moving forward, whenever we get movies back, um, we get some more dancing on screen. I think that it's – there's not a, been a I, – I just – I miss seeing dancing. I just miss seeing stuff like that. So, you know what? Honestly, I haven't – I may be talking out of turn because I haven't actually seen an American in Paris. That's a huge blind spot for me. Um but now that you mention it, maybe it just rocketed up a few spots on my list. Dude, I really hope it had because uh, 
you know, I don't know. It's something in conjunction with the Heim album and something in conjunction with watching this. You know, I literally sat in my chair and just fucking vibed throughout yeah, the entirety dude. of An American in Paris. And when it was over, I didn't fucking move a muscle for about three minutes. I just sort of sat in the feeling of the euphoria that I got from watching An American in Paris. And my compadres, my my comrades, my... my, my, my uh, <laughs> my uh what is the fucking thing it's the like what do they say uh joseph stalins my Brosif stalins on letterboxd who are not giving this movie a high enough score get over it it's fucking beautiful who cares about the story Hell it's yeah, a brother. love triangle just enjoy what's on screen and i know coming from me that might almost seem borderline hypocritical because of how much i like a good story but like Damn, dude. Holy shit, this movie's fun to watch. And it's only number eight. It's only number eight on my it's list. It's number Mason. eight. It's number eight. American in Paris is only number eight. <laughs> what will so grab be your number tap seven shoes. through one? Because American in Paris is number eight. That's right, baby. But that's all I got to say about it. Absolutely. It's on HBO Max, as far as I know. So give Oh, it hell yeah. H- I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but HBO Max is low-key one of the best streaming services in terms of just the It's my selection. favorite one, dude. Yeah. It's my favorite one as far as like what it has to offer, because you get Studio Ghibli, you get Turner Classic Movies, you get Adult Swim stuff, and then you just have regular old-ass HBO stuff as well, so... To me, it's the best one. Yes, did they absolutely ruin everyone's life by putting their entire Warner Brothers catalog on there and absolutely fuck everything up for Christopher Nolan. But, uh, you know, who cares? At the end of the day, it's a great streaming. It is a great streaming service. Toshi Cones, Perfect Blue. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, what to say about this movie without, like, spoiling it? Um, sure. Man, oh man. Um, it's an identity split movie, which is a big plus for me. Um, the animation in it is incredible. It's unlike really any other animation that I can think of. Um, the only other comparison point would be uh, bef- prior to this year that I'd seen it is another Satoshi Kon movie, Paprika. And Paprika was a big influence on old Christopher Nolan in writing in, in, uh, Inception, rather. Um, yeah, I uh, this was a, uh, a movie that Colin got from the library. And we just put it on. And you know what? Um, even though we watched a sub instead of a dub, and I feel like there's a bit of it that I'm missing, um, it's like a psychological thriller about a, a Japanese pop star whose um, identity begins to fracture when she, as far as I remember and can understand, lo- like decides to go solo or decides to take a break. And it's all about like isolation, um, you're not quite sure what the reality of it is, and they use the medium of animation um, to really um, fuck with your perception of what's actually going on. It's been on sure. my list for literal years, I think ever since I heard about it for the first time, and how it was a huge influence on Darren Aronofsky, particularly for um, Requiem for a Dream, and I believe that even Satoshi Kon gave his blessing to Requiem for a Dream, but that's this is another short one. Um, it's, it's something that you're just going to... Uh, I vied with it heavy. Uh, have you seen Perfect Blue or have you seen any Satoshi Kon movies? I've seen uh, Tokyo Godfathers in college. And then I actually, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I got to see Perfect Blue in the theater. Nice. Believe it or not. 
Nice. Uh, there is a place in Oregon. I went home after immediately after graduating college. I went home for a couple weeks to see my A, to see my sister graduate from high school. That was like the main reason why I went home for a couple weeks. But while I was there, I was like, I'm going to just see some folks and do some things, you know. And I saw that at the IMAX Theater at OMSI, which is the Ooh. Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, they were doing a little bit of an anime little thing you know they were showing some they were showing some anime movies from i want to say the late 90s and early 2000s mostly so i got to see what is the name of that movie mind game have you ever heard of mind game not familiar mind game is a crazy little anime i wasn't as big on it as i was perfect blue but i went back two nights in a row i went to see mind game one night and then the next night i went to go and see perfect blue and perfect blue and millennium actress had been on my watch list as well for a long time i still haven't seen millennium actress but Perfect Blue is a fucking awesome movie, and I honestly want to watch it again because yeah. I think I'd get even more out of it, and I think it only improves upon rewatches. But uh, there's something about 90s anime, dude, where it's a psychological thriller, and that's like a secret sweet spot for me. I just keep uncovering little like movies that are like that. That's kind of yeah. how I feel about Neon, Genis- Neon Genesis Evangelion. You know, That whole thing is a complete you know, genre-defying whatever, but... 90s anime, dude, there's just something about the art style. There's something about the way of which they were telling stories that just seemed so free and so, like, non-conforming to genre, you know, that they were just, like, free to do whatever they want and sort of have humor in it, but also have it be a psychological thriller and also have it be, like, a Robert Altman, like, very humane story about, like, a broken person, you know? So, uh, really great movie. Glad you got to see that one this year. Big fan of Perfect Blue. All right. So what's your number seven? Number seven. Uh, number seven. T2. Judgment Day. You baby. hadn't seen that before this year? I hadn't. I hadn't wow. seen any of the Terminators this, before so this, this year. So is, this is interesting because RoboCop and T2 were big movies for me and my friends in high school. And so those have okay. been, like, favorites of mine for years and movies I hold really near and dear to my heart. But go off on T2, King. All right. So... As we all know, James Cameron's a little bit of a, a little bit of a polarizing. He's a bit figure. of a stinker. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a stinker. He will get his comeuppance later in this list, though. That's all I will say. Um, because, not because, being that he is a stinker and being that he is, you know, a very polarizing figure in filmmaking for a lot of different reasons. Uh, a little bit reticent. To dive into his filmography, I had no real interest in the Terminators in high school, no real interest in the Terminators in college, but I was feeling the fucking, like I said, that sci-fi action shit, you know, I really wanted to get more into the sci-fi action shit at the beginning of uh, quarantine and earlier on in quarantine And what better movie, honestly, to watch that's a sci-fi action romp. This movie is much better than Terminator, although Terminator is good. This movie really, I think, blows the original Terminator sort of out of the water. Got some of the best action set pieces I've ever seen in a movie. I really don't feel like I need to sing this movie's praises because this movie is a fucking, you know, legendary movie. It's one of the classic sequel that's better than the original. Everyone, I think, is pretty much within agreement on that. Uh... I just had a fucking blast watching it, and it's one of those that I really feel like if this if this movie, Mason, was four and a half hours, five hours, I would have watched the entire thing in one sitting. It's that fun. It was a, if it was a, a miniseries or something, a Netflix miniseries, yeah. But no, I love the um, – I think 
to date, I've only seen the first two Terminator movies just because it seems so exhausting to try to... And I think the, the pilot of this Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Um, I love the Terminator world, but only those first two movies. Um, sure. You know, uh, it's it's one of the best action movies ever made. Um, it's one of the best. Uh, Arnold's so good in it. Um, Linda Hamilton also rocks in it. Some of the best, like, the special effects in that movie just get they better year after year because it's almost like you know it's integrated so seamlessly that's so creative um the robert patrick uh the t-1000 is one of the best and scariest movie villains um it's fucking great guys if you haven't seen it what's keeping you what's holding you up at this point it literally is worth it to watch the first terminator just to watch i mean the first terminator isn't bad i don't want to say that first terminator is bad because it's not but the second terminator t2 judgment day is so good that if you have no interest in watching the first Terminator and only care about Terminator two, it is worth it to watch the Terminator just to be able to watch T2. I think that's, that's what I got on T2. Again, it's a classic. I hadn't seen it until this year, so I don't feel like I need to say anything else really that much about it. So go ahead and give us your number six or no, I'm sorry. Seven. Yes. Seven, 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 seven. Um, filmed by this director, uh, Edward Yang's Taipei story. Um, okay, nice. Yeah, made at a time from what I can glean from the movie, made at a period where um, capitalism was coming into that country and affecting um, and affecting that generation of of people. And it's kind of about a it's about one world starting and another world ending and the inevitability of time passing. Um, I really appreciate particularly Asian cinema that's, that's in this sort of like the closest analog I have that I've seen before prior to 2020 was, um, the movies of God, what's his name? Archie, he's known as Joe. He's made uncle Boon me who made his past lives in cemeteries of splendor. Um, Taipei story is not quite as mystical as those movies um at least recalling it right now but it does have that same sort of like um almost very meditative quality to it that i really like um and it made me really hype to to really give my time to both uh to find the time to give to to both a brighter summer's day and yee which are on my list uh and huge blind spots for me in 2021 or maybe later you know you never know but um, yeah, really was moved by this mo- by this particular film, uh, and it's on the Criterion Collection, or the Criterion Channel rather. Um, it's in Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project, I believe. Um, so even even if you haven't if you have seen Edward Yang movies and have not seen this one, or if you have not, I think this is a good place to start because it's not uh, the runtime for some of his later stuff may be you know prohibitive prohibit you from watching it. This one's pretty short. Um, comparatively, but I was incredibly uh, swept up in this thing. Uh, have you seen Taipei Story? Because I feel like you've seen uh, Edward Yang movies. Not seen Taipei Story. Um, I have only seen Yi Yi. Uh, watched Yi in college, and it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like straight up. Uh, and a brighter summer day has been on my list ever since I found out about it. And the only reason I haven't watched it is because it's nearly, you know, four hours yeah. basically, or it might be, is it, is it actually over four hours? I can't remember. 
or if it actually goes over. Let me check this really quick if you wouldn't mind vamping for a second by the summer day. <laughs> Three hours and 57 minutes. Three hours and 57 minutes. Right yeah, so it just kisses four hours. Yeah, I mean, that's basically four hours at the end of the day. And that is not that is the reason why I haven't checked it out. But I know that it's going to be one of those things where it's like, okay, today I'm just going to watch A Brighter Summer Day. I think I even own the Criterion Blu-ray of A Brighter Summer Day, and it's just packed away in storage where all my other DVDs and Blu-rays are right now. Um, and I probably should watch it before I go back to LA because the TV that my parents have here is mucho better than the one that I have, uh, in storage in LA. Uh, (laughs) yeah, where I just hack the mainframe every single fucking day of my life. (laughs) So, but I am excited to keep looking at Edward Yang films. I really, really liked Yee Yee. Really can't wait to check out A Brighter Summer Day. We'll be honest with you. I'm probably going to check that one out before I check out Taipei Story, but, uh, heard great things about Taipei Story, and I've also heard great things about his movie The Terrorizers as well. Yeah, uh, and that's I think another that movie one was like a movie see. earlier this year. It might still be in the library, and I almost watched that one first, but pulled the trigger on Taipei Story instead. Hell yeah, brother. Uh, love that for you. <laughs> love that for you, Mason. Uh, am I good to go on and talk about number six? Great. This might, this one might, this actually, not this movie will piss people off, but the position that this film is in will probably piss people off, is my guess. My number six favorite first watch that I watched in 2020, The Godfather Part 2. Had never, had never seen The Godfather Part 2 prior to this year. I rewatched The Godfather after having not seen it since like sophomore year, freshman year of high school. It's one of the greatest movies I've ever made. Literally, like, just straight up is. literally nothing because it's just yep i get it it's great uh had never seen godfather 2 you know and this is another you know back to back t2 is better than uh terminator in a lot of people's minds and there's a lot of case to be made that godfather part 2 is better than the original godfather i think that like that is not a you know insanely hot take i think that there are people out there who think that you know and i think there are people out there who will abide by that probably and stick to that gun until the day that they shuffle off this mortal coil. Do I think that? No. I think the first Godfather is better than Godfather Part 2. But my favorite moments between the two happen in Part 2. The opening sequence where you see young Vito in Italy and then you see him come through Ellis Island, that is not filmmaking that is a historical document. That is living history. I was blown away. Did not even know what the right word to describe the moment of watching that happen on screen was because it is so powerful and such a well-produced moment and you know sequence of the beginning of Godfather 2. Watching him look out the window at the Statue of Liberty after quarantining which you know big big buzzword this year quarantine haha so uh there's that everything in cuba is fucking breathtaking you know just being in havana and being able to photograph that is a fucking privilege and honor because most americans will never see cuba you know in their living days 
Uh, and that's probably the closest I'll ever get to Cuba. You know, hopefully one day I would get to see it in person. But just the period that they're able to recreate is so amazing. The scene between Fredo and Michael, you know, where they're alone in the room and basically like, you know, I can't help you anymore type shit. The final scene, which is a, you know, flashback where Michael's alone at the table. It's fucking great. I mean, just see The Godfather Part 2. It's one of the biggest movies that I hadn't seen up until this point, and I really just needed to check it off the list. And I did move it up. It was actually number eight for a while. It was number, or actually maybe it was even number nine for a while. But I just kept thinking about how amazing moments in that movie were that really, truly took my breath away. And I think my favorite individual moments between Godfather and Godfather Part 2 happening to, but one is just such a strong movie uh, on all yeah, fronts. Yeah, one, I haven't seen either since high school, honestly. Um, one does sit in my mind more as a cohesive part, and two does have, like you said, those moments that just pop, like Michael kissing Fredo at the New Year's party. Exactly. Uh, or Don Vito in the flashback uh, at the, I think, the San Gennaro Fair when he's tracing down, uh, I forget the character's name. Yes. Um, and that moment where he's, like, holding the gun through the cloth or whatever yeah, is just so the, fucking at the door, iconic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That part is awesome. Uh, you mentioned it, actually, and it reminded me that when I was in fourth grade and we were learning about Ellis Island, they showed that scene in my class. No um, shit. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, good movie. I mean, it's an American classic. <laughs> I don't know what else there is to really say about it, but good movie. I'm glad I saw it, dude, honestly. And, you know, there's the Godfather 3 discourse sort of swirling around right now since Coppola right. went in and sort of retouched it and tried to, you know, make it better. I've never seen Godfather 3. It's really not a high priority for me as far as I'm concerned. So Honestly, not for me either. Even though I know, I understand that it's, the, 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 the word that I'm getting back is that it's better than its reputation suggests, but it's still not, like, it's so hard to make, like, a, uh, a, a, a worthy sequel to two movies that are titans of American cinema and both won Academy Awards, you know? Yeah, for best picture, let alone. Exactly. Um, all right, so are we going to move on to number six? Yes! My number six... Uh, David Lynch's Inland Empire. Um, wow. Yeah, another movie that was like uh, another movie Colin got from the library, and we both had to check off of our respective lists here. Uh, and again, another three-hour-long movie. That's not there's not going to be another three-hour-long movie in my fucking <laughs> my list after this point. Um, for it, it, this is the probably the most conditional recommend of my 10 here, but it just left such a mark on me that I had to put it on my list because it was just like, it is kind you know, Mulholland Drive is probably the best David Lynch movie, but this is like the most David Lynch movie. Um, okay. And for years, the only thing I knew about it was that very frightening picture of Laura Dern's face. And if you know, you know. And even though I was prepared for it to come up in the movie, it was still maybe one of the most frightening things I've ever seen <laughs> on screen. Um, I can't really talk about it to because, it, like with all David Lynch movies, he's giving you ideas and he's trying to engender feelings on the first watch. And then the more you kind of sit and sift through it, um, the more it kind of reveals itself to you. Like, I think it was just this year when I watched Mulholland Drive again where I was like, I think I kind of understand what's happening in this movie. And truth be told, I don't know if I want to sit through all of Inland Empire again just for the point of understanding it. I think I just has to be like, um, 
even though I did end up uh, ultimately liking the movie, it's very creepy. It's about um, kind of similar to um, oh, it's reminding me of something. I think kind of similar to Perfect, kind of similar to Perfect Blue. It's another um, like identity crisis movie um, with an actor, uh, but this one is about particularly Los Angeles. Um, this is the only David Lynch movie that he has edited, so that's why it feels like the most of interesting. His, and it's also him going through, I think, like right after his divorce. So it's also kind of a divorce movie. Um, I don't know. I think that like it. I tried to keep it off my list, but try as I might, it ended up. Even though it is like, for me, the recommendation for this one is if you like David Lynch and you know you want to give yourself the time to it, absolutely sit down and do it. I found it a very rewarding watch ultimately. Um, but if you haven't seen a David Lynch movie. This is not where you should start. Um, not at all. And if you don't have three hours to give to it and you won't, you know, put your phone away, um, then it's probably also not going to be, um, you know, not the environment to watch it. But I don't know, man. I thought it was really uh, scary. I thought it was really um, unique. It's been on my mind since I watched it. Almost not, uh, not almost nonstop, but it's been on my mind a lot since I watched it. So, uh, yeah, number six for me. Uh, have not seen Inland Empire, um, but I have had my mind on David Lynch myself for other reasons, mostly the Twin Peaks type stuff, just because of some other things that I'm thinking about as far as things that I'm sort of percolating on myself and as far as creative endeavors goes, I'm being vague on purpose. But I've just had my mind on Lynch myself because he is so courageous as a filmmaker. Yeah. He is yeah. so willing to just let things fucking fly and like you know i think the ultimate david lynch moment for me as far as like who he is as an artist is the moment that you know everyone pretty much knows the story but it's you know he says you know it's eraserhead's actually my most spiritual work and the reporter says can you elaborate on that and he just says no and that's just awesome yeah. that's just fucking that's just awesome that he's just willing to fucking stick to his guns tell you what he thinks but not reveal the secret and i think it's so smart and so brilliant yeah, to just not yeah. be able to comment on your work like that you yeah know? exactly yeah he um what I, he uh he makes the thing and then he he doesn't suffer people who want interpretation as an answer because he wants you to bring something to the movie in yourself and have a movie reveal something about yourself to you. Uh, and he makes, like, horror movies, you know? So a lot of his movies are, like, what terrifies you, I think. And I think something for me is, like, maybe losing your identity in some way. Um, but, man, I, I really vibe with his movies. Um, I would go to the, bat, to the mat for David Lynch seven days uh seven days a week so you would fucking give someone the people's elbow for david lynch movies yeah i would mm-hmm. where would you start with david lynch because you said you wouldn't start with inland empire but yeah, where would I you think, start honestly with? i would probably start with my first david lynch movie was um blue velvet um i would probably start there um and then maybe the twin peaks pilot um, I think the first two David Lynch movies I saw were early in college and they were Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive. And I don't necessarily think those are bad places to start. Um, but I think that if you watch Blue Velvet, you're going to know if you fuck with this guy or not. Um, it's not a, uh, it's, and it's maybe one of his more accessible movies that feels lynchy. You know what I'm saying? It absolutely is. Yeah. It's not like the, the elephant man, which is like just a, a drama with a David Lynch touch to it. And I, I adore the, the elephant man. I think I said invisible man. doesn't matter. Um, 
but I would probably start with Blue Velvet. It's a good point. I was going to say Mulholland Drive, but I think you are correct in saying Blue Velvet is probably the best place to start because it's interesting, dude. I don't know if I love Blue Velvet as much as I don't, I'm not as hot else, on it know? as a lot. I haven't seen it in years. I don't think I've seen it since college, actually. But people are really hot for Blue Velvet, and I just um, – God, Mulholland Drive is one of the most beautiful movies to me, honestly. I love that movie so much. That's my favorite, Lynch. I think and it's probably I've... my favorite. Yeah, probably my favorite, yeah. And I've seen I've seen it actually a solid amount of his stuff. Actually, like looking back, I really really need to rewatch the Elephant Man. And there's actually a David Lynch movie I want to bring on the podcast one day, but I'm not going to say anything else more than that. Oh, are we going to bring uh, Dune on Mason. the pod? Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe. I think I know uh, the one you're Mason. talking about, and it's one I haven't seen, so I would really love for you to bring it on the pod. Great, Mason. Can I talk about my number five movie now? No, let's talk about David Lynch some more. I'm just kidding. Okay, he was just kidding, folks. Just kidding. Haha, ha, good one, Mason. Uh, we're going to talk about number five. We're entering the top five zone. Da, 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 da. Edging out The Godfather Part 2 to be the number five and enter the top five zone. Ten things I hate about you, brother. That's going to be the box quote on 10 things I hate about you from now on. Is better than The Godfather 2, Noah Marger. It's on the list podcast. <laughs> Honestly... I like it more. <laughs> just, no, that's, I like that's, it more. In, that's valid, King. I love that for you. I like it more in the sense that I have more fun and like I have a little bit more enjoyment out of it. And as uh, you know me, I love teen shit. I love a high school story. Yeah. I love you know teenagers in movies. Uh, I just absolutely love setting things from their perspective because everything has such high stakes when you're a teenager. Yeah. Everything when you're a kid and a teenager has such high stakes because when you're a kid, you are helpless in a lot of ways. And, you know, ultimately I think a lot of stories about kids empower, like strive to empower kids to, you know, use their voice and use what they have at their disposal. Um, and teenager stories are about sort of having to let go of the fact that you're not helpless anymore and like actually like stand up for yourself and like live your life in a way that's, you know, important to you and live your life in a way that, you know, start to uncover really how you want to be as a person in the world and how you want to treat other people and how you want to walk through life. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. ten, th- and 10 things I hate about you is just an absolute banger of a fun time. Absolute banger, uh, of a teen movie. It's based on taming of the shrew. Uh, which is nothing. <laughs> it just doesn't fucking matter, really, at the end of the day. Um, and I just think it is a really funny, really well-written movie, really, really, like, enjoyable watch that is a, like, top example of what a teen drama or what a teen comedy or what a teen movie, quote-unquote, can be. It can really express true emotions. It can talk about true things. And it can have sort of that charm of, like, being silly and being a little bit, like, over the top while still having very true emotions run through it. And if I have to give an MVP to 10 things I hate about you, it's got to be young Dave Crumholtz in that movie. Have you seen 10 things I hate about you, Mason? Do you I, know what I'm talking about? I honestly about? have not. No, um, I have not. Sad. I'm not, I don't dislike teen movies, but they're not generally a priority for me. Um, but man, if it's got yours, that since high of a seal of approval, plus it's got, you know, you got, you got the only thing the one thing i have seen the scene where julia style says the 10 things she hates about you and she's a very good actor that's a very good scene it's a very good performance um you got heath ledger in that and uh i'm happy that it, it means a lot to you 
I like it a lot. I I I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> so that's my number five. I can't believe it beat out Godfather Part Two. But listen, brother, sometimes uh, we, sometimes you go left and I go right. Oh, baby, that's life. Sometimes you know what I mean. Well, every time I do think about taking the steps, you get mad at me for making a mess, and I don't understand why. I don't understand why you put Ten Things I Hate About You above The Godfather Part Two. And nobody does. Mason, what's your number five? Uh, my number five. This is the only movie that I want. The only new to me movie that I watched more than once this year that wasn't Local Hero. And like we said before, Local Hero was excluded because I brought it on the podcast. Uh, this sure. is a movie that was brought to my attention actually by Ryan Kenny, not by his own recommendation to me personally, but because he ranked it in his top four on Letterboxd. And that movie is Alan Rudolph's Choose Me. Um, it's oh, okay. Fr- it's free on Amazon Prime, or at least it was. Unfortunately, it looks like the, tr- the the transfer that they have is from a tape of some kind, so it's not in the best quality. It's not as bad as uh, the 2046 on Amazon <laughs> Holy shit, it's, that was it's so fucking brutal. a movie that's draped in, like, neon color and very vibrant colors, and it just kind of doesn't um, – it doesn't pop as much as, you, as one would like. But this is a movie about, like, lonely people in Los Angeles. Um, there's a – radio there's a radio kind of um talk radio kind of uh sex therapist kind of person who's living uh who has an unsatisfied uh romantic life and she moves into it's one of those movies where every single character has something really uh has a very important plot function and you don't realize it when you meet them right away um it's a very neat movie it's a very tidy movie speaking of gene kelly and dancing it's a very kind of graceful and balletic movie that's not about dancing and doesn't have like a dance scene in it but just the way that the characters move through it it kind of feels like i don't know if you've ever seen like a play where they're just like like moving sets like around the actors basically as they're coming in and out of the wings and stuff like that and you're just kind of like in a space with like the only it feels like the only physical thing in the space is the person or the only grounded space are the actors um it has uh keith carradine it has leslie ann walker um it has oh shoot i forget her name but really a movie that um was such a treat to discover um and i think more people would watch and like it's uh very sexy it's very romantic Um, and it's very – it kept me on my toes the whole time when I was watching it. Um, and so I would strongly recommend it. I think – I'm going to double-check now that it's on Amazon Prime. But, uh, yeah, really, really liked Choose Me by Alan. That's a movie that's been on my list as well. And there's been many times where I've actually tried to watch. It just says that it's on uh, Prime. I just sort of did a little search. It says that it's still on Prime. So shout-out to Alan Rudolph, Choose Me, still being there. Uh, it's a movie I've actually thought about watching uh, many times. Uh, sort of been on my list in, you know, higher and lower priorities throughout the course of me knowing about it. I think it's a movie I would really dig personally. I think it has sort of that like yeah. short story quality to it, yeah. you know, of just sort of like literary novelistic like life being lived, you know, in like huge big human moments. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um. I'm also just a sucker for movies that take place. I don't think they explicitly say that it's in L.A., but it you do – if you spend any time around, like, DTLA, it seems very familiar. So, um, gotcha. And I love a movie that takes place in L.A. in the 80s. Um, so, yeah, that's my number five. Noe, what's your number four? My number four, speaking of a movie that will keep you on your toes, 
Um, this is a movie. Uh, so again, here's the backstory. Actually, this is a story all about how Noah ended up watching a lot of movies that other people picked throughout the course of 2020. Uh, I do this podcast. I do my other podcasts. People can pick movies to watch on there, and we talk about that. And then my friend Cole calls me up one day. I haven't really talked to Cole in a while. And he said, hey, do you want to do like a quasi-movie club where we take turns choosing a movie a week to watch? We call each other on the phone, and we talk about it. I said, sure. That sounds fun. Let's do that. Cole and I were doing that for a while. And then Cole went on a trip in the middle of the pandemic. He flew to Croatia. And I was like, oh, okay. Kind of insane that you're going to do that right now, but I can't say anything that's going to stop you, but I hope you have a good time, basically. Right. Uh, So he goes to Croatia, and I'm like, well, I still kind of want to do this while he's there. I still want to do this, like, movie club thing. So, Mason, who do I call up instead? I call up... Chef Dustin Titcomb, the first ever official guest that we ever had on this podcast. And I say, Chef, do you want to do a movie club, basically, just as Cole described it to me? And he said, yes. And I said, can I go first, since it was my idea? And he said, sure. And this is happening at the end of- Mom said it's my turn to host the movie club. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I go first, and it's at the end of October, because I know Cole is leaving in the beginning of November, and he's going to be in Croatia for a month. And I was in the sort of horror thriller mood because we're at the end of October still. And so I said to Dustin, let's watch Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And he said, okay. Because what else is he going to say? That's the most it was Dustin Kickham thing the I can think of him ever saying, which is okay. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, kind of the king of saying okay. It's kind of, this is kind of his trademark. Mason, this movie is off the fucking wall. This movie is absolutely insane. I don't know how to fully describe it. It is a detective story that has supernatural elements in it, and you never fully know what is happening, literally happening on screen, but you have a general idea of what could be happening on screen because of these sort of supernatural elements that they set up. It's got a very particular tone. It's ultimately a mystery. It's ultimately a supernatural thriller, but it's at its core like about fear and what sort of drives people crazy at a certain level and how fear can sort of consume you. Uh, it's a movie that I do not understand, but it is a movie that I have thought about every day, basically in some way, shape or form since love the way it's shot, love the performances in this movie, especially from the main, uh, hero, quote unquote hero and the main antagonist of the film. So this is a movie that if it's still on Criterion, I just highly recommend you just watch and go into as blind as you can. I think you're going to have a hoot and a half. Have you seen Cure? That does sound like a Mason movie. So I will look out for that. Hell yeah, brother. But yeah, that's number four for me, Cure. Number four for me, also uh, as a first-time Criterion Channel watch, uh, Joan Micklin Silver, Between the Lines. Um, Joan Micklin Silver is also... I had seen one Joan Micklin Silver movie prior to this. I've only seen these two. Um, but she's a really interest, she has a really interesting career, and maybe I bring another unseen movie of hers onto the list because I think she's kind of an underrated director. Uh, the only other movie I've seen of hers is uh, Crossing Delancey, which is a very sweet romantic kind of comedy with um, 
I forget the lead actor's name, but uh, Peter Regert from Local Hero is also in it. Yeah. Uh, about a uh, young woman who um, is uh, at, at Crossing Delancey is not the topic of discussion here. Between the Lines <laughs> is a movie about a uh, group of journalists for an underground uh, newspaper in Cambridge, Boston. You kind of get the sense that it's like uh, like Harvard adjacent, basically. Um, in kind of the last days of their um, the paper's existence, as it's getting uh, bought by a major media publication, um, it's a movie uh, kind of on a, the similar theme about um, a similar theme to Taipei Story about how you can't fight against history and you can't fight against time. And you can't fight against um, people moving in different directions in their lives. Uh, this year, for me in particular. Um, I had hoped that I would be able to come back to Chicago and integrate myself into a community that I was in in college and see a lot of those friends and spend a lot more time with them. But Pandemic had other plans. They had other plans. And I saw this movie and it kind of reminded me that, well, this is just how the things – this is just how things go. Um, it's a – I guess it would be kind of a drama um, it has an incredible cast. It has um, Jeff Goldblum. It has John Hurd, H-E-R-D, uh, you know, the dad from um, <clears throat> uh, the dad from Home Alone, among other things. John Hurd's one of my favorite character actors, and it's a big bummer he's dead. It's got Lindsay Krause, um, Bruno Kirby, and Gwen Wells. Gwen Wells known for her uh, collaborations mostly with um, Robert Altman in Nashville. Yeah. She's in Desert Hearts. She's in Desert Hearts. How about that? Uh in any case, um, it was a big. It was, a, it was a surprise to me to watch that movie. I had put it on my list on on the Criterion Channel just because the name Joan McLean Silver stood out to me, and I was like, "Oh, I'm kind of curious to see what else she made." Um, and I don't know. It struck me at just the right time, and any time. I think this probably happened. I don't know if this happens to you also, but I'll just be going through my life and every, you know, you get songs stuck in your head. Sometimes you get movies stuck in your head. And this is a movie that got stuck in my head. Just thinking like, damn, like this was a really, really good movie. Uh, I haven't gotten around to watching it again, um, but really would recommend folks check it out. Um, yeah. Between the lines, Joan Micklin Silver. This movie, I have a buddy who is in the University of Iowa's master's program for creative writing, mm -hmm. and this seems like such a movie that he would like. His name's Dave, and this just seems like such a Dave movie, and I wonder if he's seen it, and if he hasn't seen it, I'm going to text him and tell him to watch this movie, and I had actually never heard of this movie before. I knew the name Joan Micklin Silver only because it is a name that's kind of hard to get out of your head if you hear it, yeah. you know, or read it. Yeah. Um, but I've never seen this movie either. And honestly, it looks really good. Uh, I might watch this before year. We're recording this before 2021, but you know, uh, I might watch this before the end of 2020, right, uh, sure. as we are currently recording it. Not when this comes out. Uh, this looks awesome. This looks really nice. It kind of looks like a, like workplace dramedy that has like, play feel to it you know what i mean like that's sort of the vibe it is that I'm it's getting very it. modest um i it may even be based off of a play honestly but it's very modest um which is another thing that i really like about it um and yeah it's it is kind of a workplace dramedy but it's a workplace dramedy about people uh, idealistic people in their early to mid 20s and you don't really see a lot of that which is why this one really stood out to me because it's like takes it's characters that are roughly around the same age that I am um 
and I don't know. It's it's uh, I I really liked it a lot. Uh, Steven Van Zant did the score for this movie is what I'm looking at right here, aka Little Stevie from the E Street Band, aka Silvio from the Sopranos. Hell yeah, hell yeah. All right. Nice, fun, Mason. That's fun. Yeah, this is a fun <laughs> list. I love this. This is a fun list here. What's your number three? Right, Mason. Remember when I said uh, James Cameron was going to get his comeuppance a little bit later in the list? This is this a Catherine Bigelow movie? You're absolutely goddamn right. It's a Catherine Bigelow movie, brother. Hell yeah, brother. Uh, this movie skyrocketed to the top of my list, and I kind of realized how much I love this movie. And yes, I'm talking about Point Break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Point Break fucking rocks, uh, I'm so happy dude. That you finally Point saw that movie Break. for the first time this year. That movie—that's one of my all-time favorite action movies. That movie is so fucking good. It is amazing. Uh, the first time I ever saw any piece of this movie was actually in film school in one of the last directing classes that I took. We were looking at how to shoot a chase, you know. And so, of yeah. course, you had to you have to show the scene from Point Break where it starts in a car and then ends up on foot, you know, and you're running through people's houses all across the west side of L.A. Uh, and he shoots into the sky. Yes, and he shoots into the sky. And the, don't they end up in the L.A. River by the end of it? I think they do end up in the L.A. River Basin. Mm-hmm. And I, that never left my mind. And I was like, damn, that looks fucking sick. Like, just straight up, I was like, damn, that looks like a fucking awesome time. So uh, earlier in the year, earlier in 2020, uh, I checked it out. I don't remember if it was on like a streaming service or whatever, but I checked it out anyway. Actually, it may have been on HBO Max now that I think about it. So another big fucking W in the W column for (laughs) HBO Max on that one. But uh, it's kind of amazing to me because my impression of this movie was the first half of this movie, it's pretty good. It's okay, you know, we're kind of getting things started. You're learning a lot about Johnny Utah and his relationship to Gary Busey, who honestly I haven't seen in a lot of movies, but I don't know if he's ever been better than in this movie, you know, honestly. Uh, But, dude, the second half of this movie is fucking unstoppable. The second half of this movie is honestly up there for me with, like, MI6 and, like, other amazing action movies, literally up there for me with, like, The Matrix and the John Wicks and, like, stuff like that, you know, as far as, like, pure action is concerned. The skydiving sequences in this movie are... Or not the skydiving, but the... Is it skydiving technically what they're doing, right? That's what skydiving is? I think so. I don't know if it's, like, a a subspecies of skydiving, but it's basically what they're doing. They're free-falling out of a fucking plane, basically, (laughs) in a helicopter at the end of the day. Yeah, it's... it's, Oh, my God. I haven't seen that movie in so long, and it's... Oh, it's so good. And the surf photography is good in the movie, too. Like, if you're just wanting to see people fucking shred. It's a beautiful... It's a beautiful-looking movie. I don't, like... Of course, you talk about like when you talk about Point Break, how uh, kinetic it is, how good of an, how good the action set pieces are, how good Swayze and Keanu are together, uh, their 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 homoerotic undertones and all of that stuff. But no one talks about really how like striking and beautiful that movie is. It's a really incredibly well shot film. It is. You've got the air. You've got the sea. You've got the earth. You know when they sort of end up uh, in the desert later on in the movie, where sort of the climax of the movie happens. And I know we haven't really been giving you know Mercedes valuable players out uh, throughout the course of either our last list or this one, but I really wanted to make sure that I hit Patrick Swayze with the Mercedes valuable player for this. Oh yeah. You know Keanu Reeves is so young in this dude. Like he's barely off of. Uh, 
Bill and Ted's like uh, <laughs> Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, and he's getting thrown into the world of like undercover FBI shit. But Swayze just absolutely eats up scenery in this movie, dude. He is on another level. So I do have to give him the Mercedes Valuable Player just for his performance in this. I probably ultimately would give a co-Mercedes Valuable Player to fucking Catherine Bigelow as well, just because of how she decides to shoot some of those action sequences. And then the fucking stuff in the bank is so fucking exhilarating, too, with the dead president's masks, which is just an amazing, iconic thing to have people wear yeah. as, like, you know, presidents. Or are they, or is that their thing? They're dead, right? They're, like, dead presidents, or are they just presidents? they're called the dead presidents, but they maybe, I think one of them has a... I'm trying to remember if one has a Clinton mask or if it ends at H.W. Bush. Well, it was weird because I thought Nixon was still alive in the mid-90s. Nixon dies in 95. I think they're technically called the dead presidents, though. Well, that's that's what they call – that's like a name for money, too, is dead presidents. Yeah, right, right, you know, right, And right. so that's a little double entendre there. But, dude, Point Break fucking rocks. It's just so fucking good. It's an amazing action movie. The second half of Point Break is, like, five stars. Like, kind of, like, if you just watch the second half onward and it's just pure adrenaline and pure action awesomeness, like, that's a five star for me. The movie as a whole, just because the first half is a little bit, like, I don't want to say clunky, but it's just not as interesting. You know, like it, they just it's set everything up. It's a grower, not a shower movie. Absolutely. It is, a, it, is a, it, is, it is a dad dick of a film if I've ever <laughs> seen one. Um, but, yeah, Point Break fucking rocks. Watch it tonight. Thank you, Chef. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. My number three. Uh, no, this would be one to put on your list because it reminded me when I was watching it of uh, your beloved Uncut Gems. Mine too. Uh, it's a new one to me. I it was a blind buy more or less from a recent Criterion half sale, and it's Jules Dassin's Night in the City. Okay. Uh, it was made under interesting conditions. Jules Dassin was um, fingered as a potential communist under HUAC, and this was kind of his like last chance to make a movie in a studio, and I think he had to film it in London. Because there was no way he was going to get... There's a great interview on the Criterion Blu-ray. You can probably watch it on YouTube, too. But basically, um, Richard Woodmark plays this guy who is in over his head with, like, hustles and deals and tries to um, buy a slice... Who tries to get a slice of uh, wrestling promotion um, in the 50s. And it's one of those movies where you're watching and do you like with uncut gems where you're just watching somebody make bad decision after bad decision and rejects the outsider put in front of his face. Love it. Um, and it has just incredible black and white photography. Um, it has an incredible performance from Richard Woodmark at the center. And, uh, the actor whose name is escaping me plays his like kind of, um, partner who's a, who's a former wrestler. Uh, yeah, I mean, I knew that I was going to really resonate with this movie, uh, when I bought it, but I just did not quite know that it would just, like, just, like, would hit me, like, like a tuning fork, basically, like, just my resonant frequency. It's so nasty, it's so mean, it's so unforgiving, it's, like, kind of, uh, a better, like, kind of late-period studio noir, um, and if you, uh, haven't seen... If you think a noir is just, like, detectives and, like, smoky corridors and stuff like that, I would really recommend giving this one in particular a try because it's basically also an action movie. Um, and, yeah, just an, just an all-out blast, all-out blast. This one was one where I almost left it off my list, and then when I put it on, I had to be like, no, this is, like, going towards the top. Here Hell, yeah. Just because, like, man, it fucking rocks. It fucking rocks. So, Night in the City. Jules Dassin, blind spot for me. Never seen Rafifi. Never seen Night in the City. Uh, 
Sounds cool, though. Like, you know, I think I've yeah. established on this show that I'm not crazy into noirs, you know, whatever that means. Right. But this right. one sounds dope. So yeah. definitely de- definitely putting it on the list if it's not already, which it probably is, honestly, just because it's a criterion. And when you're in college and learning about cinema, if it's on the criterion, you know, in the criterion collection, it goes on your overall watch list, you know. But right. s- sounds fucking dope. So very epic. All right. What's your number two? Ooh. I know. All right. So this was a pre-quarantine watch, actually. Uh, I was still in L.A. Uh, Pandemic had not ensued in the United States. And I decided that I was going to check out this movie, Mason. And I'm not a big fan. Let me say that differently. If I had the choice between listening to the studio album and the live recording of the same album. You would choose the studio, yes. Nine times out of ten, I'm going to choose the studio album. I just prefer to listen to music that way. I don't even dislike going to concerts. I just want to listen to the studio version of it if I have that option. With virtually one ex- virtually one exception. There are two exceptions, really, but in this case, to be a little more dramatic, I'm going to say virtually one exception. The Last Waltz is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my entire life. There uh, you go. The band is. is not necessarily a band. Their name is The Band, if you did not know. Uh, not necessarily a fave of mine by any stretch, but they pack that stage with stars and amazing musicians throughout the course of that concert. And Scorsese films that concert in such a way and I know people talk about stop making sense as sort of like the ultimate concert you know film experience I didn't feel that way when I watched stop making sense but I really felt that way when I watched the last waltz I really felt like I was there breathing in the weed you know breathing in people's alcohol off their breath absolutely getting rocked around watching Van Morrison walk up on stage to do caravan Watching Neil Young go up on stage to do Helpless, which is my MVP, my Mercedes Valuable Player of the movie, is their version of Helpless, Neil Young and the band. And it just was an amazing time. It was just an amazing time. He's coming off of Taxi Driver. He's coming off of New York, New York. And he's kind of lost, I think, as a filmmaker, potentially, because he just had this huge hit, and then he just had a huge not hit. And he's like, well... Let's do something completely different. And Scorsese is obviously one of the greatest filmmakers that we've ever had. He's a legend. And this is absolutely one that you should not skip. If for some reason you're like, I'm a huge Scorsese fan, but I only want to watch Casino. I only want to watch Goodfellas. I only want to watch Wolf of Wall Street. Take the time. It's not even that long. Even if you don't like the music, it's a fucking experience, dude. I really felt like floaty when I was watching this. I was like, this is some amazing music. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's such a good... um. I think it really closes the book. Uh, if you want to understand, I think, like, 70s music, The Last Waltz is a good place to um, – to, a good thing to study. Um, just, like, what that kind of era was like. Um, I haven't seen that also – I also haven't seen that in years. Um, but, yeah, very mournful, very um, True. sad. And I'm just – right now what I'm thinking of is um, there's a couple, like um, – performances that are just like in kind of a soundstage or a studio space and in my memory when i watched it the first time my favorite part of that movie was the um when this when they're singing with the staple singers doing the wait um, yes 
Yes. Yeah, I, I think uh, the Staple Singers is an, also an all-time great American band. Um, but yeah, it it's kind of like... Because the band was Bob Dylan's backing band, and then they started their own like kind of solo project, basically. Um, and you're watching this movie, and it it just you do feel like you're watching the end of the end of something. The band would eventually return. Um, I just rewatched actually. Uh, Shut up and play the hits. Yeah, that is the modern version of the West. Yeah, Wars. it is. It is. And um, but the edge that I think that uh. Uh, uh, the last waltz has is with the uh, the with shut up and play the hits. You're like, oh, I'm watching the end of a band. And I, as I keep saying, with the last waltz, you're like, oh, I'm watching the end of an era. And uh, if that's something that sounds interesting to you, or at least if you like like '70s music and haven't seen this, definitely gotta give that one a shot. I think uh, that right. I think shut the fuck up. Let me talk. I think that <laughs> I think that the the circumstances surrounding the last waltz are what put it over the edge. The fact that yeah. this is the finale, you know, and you feel yeah. it as you're getting closer and closer to the end with every song that ticks off the set list. You're like, damn, I'm only going to watch these guys perform these songs for so much longer. And they're playing their fucking hearts out. I mean, I don't know if it's a unceremonious split, you know, for these guys. It didn't seem like a, like, Ten, like a tenuous split but it just sort of seemed like a, i think we're done with this type split yeah they kind of wrote it as far as they could take it at that time and instead of you know beating a dead horse they uh um they 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 called it as they saw it so admire them for that hell yeah brother but it's it really is that moment of like wow we are seeing this like we are seeing with every bead of sweat that comes off these guys, just the end of something. And that is amazing to see just yeah. as much as the music is amazing to see. So check out the last waltz. It almost, I almost put it number one, to be honest with you. Like that's how much I've loved it. And I watched it pre quarantine. So now I'm excited to see what your number one, <laughs> you're going to love my number one. You're going to love it. But yeah, what is your number two mace? My number two. Um, I am a big, uh, I love Korean cinema. Uh, and Criterion Channel had a, uh, modern Korea kind of, um, series that was going. And one of them was an early Park Chan-wook film called Joint Security Area. And I watched it, and brother, did my shit get rocked. Yes. Um, it is in, it is ostensibly a drama. I think it was the highest grossing movie in Korea to a certain point. I don't know if it still has that distinction. Um... But it's also kind of, without there being a ton of, like, shootouts or something, it is something of an action movie. Um, it's about, basically, um, there's a, uh, a massacre, we'll say, at a, um, uh, a, a North Korean checkpoint, and the only person that makes it out alive is our two, our, the only people that make it out alive are two South Korean soldiers. And um, the movie starts from the perspective of a neutral of a uh, Korean Swedish woman who comes in to investigate what goes on. And the more that you uncover, um, the more that is uncovered in this movie, kind of the sadder it gets because it's about a, um, it's, it's about a relationship and a, uh, a group of people who's um, just by virtue of their geography could not have a, the relationship that they deserve with each other. Right. Um, and it's it's a movie that is um, 
very, um, I think, thoughtful uh, and very entertaining um, and very, 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 very sad um, about just sort of like how arbitrary like borders and and politics and things like that can get in the way of forming um, relationships and also how it's um, how when you're in a like how it's how also like uh, how frightening dogma is almost in a way um, or dogmatic beliefs basically um, I don't know I was it was um, it was one of my favorite things that I discovered this year that I had no context for ahead of time that I basically was like, let's put this on. This sounds pretty good. Um, just cause I just based off my own taste, I knew I would get something out of it. And man, it was really, 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 really blew me away. It's a fairly recent one for me. And it also was another one that I was maybe keeping off my list, but man, it's just like the impact that I had on this, that this movie had on me. Um, couldn't, couldn't keep it down anything lower than, than two on my list, but if it's still on the Criterion channel, I would strongly recommend folks watch it. Um, I'm, you know, I've loved basically every Park Chan Wook movie I've seen so far, and maybe, maybe I will finally get around to watching Old Boy. I'll finally get around to doing it. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's um, also to say, Song Kang Ho, the dad from Parasite, yeah, uh, is in this movie. It's one of his earlier roles, and man, he's an actor that I just love. Anytime he's on screen, and he's kind of going to be a guy where it's like, if he's in that movie, I'll give it a shot. Honestly, um, so yeah. So if that seems like kind of your bag, if you like Park Chan Wook or even you know other Korean cinema, and you haven't seen that, put it on your list. I it, I think it, you're really going to have a good time with it. You love brief encounters. Yes. You love that in a movie. You love a brief encounter. That's something I've noticed about you is that you really like people meeting by chance or people meeting under certain circumstances and then a dreaded, we know that this can't continue, you know, type of story. And not to say that that's not a good or that's not a good, bad or indifferent thing. I've just no, noticed it that is, about it you. Is, you know what that you're, I hadn't even considered that this was a brief encounter movie. And now I think I need to add it to my running list of brief encounter movies because I do have a letterbox list of brief encounter movies. <laughs> I have noticed that this is a thing, uh, a particular um, theme or element in a story that really resonates with me. And I can't tell you why, but good read on me, chef. Thank you. Have you ever seen Andrew Hayes weekend? Uh, no, I have not actually. That's also been one that's on my list, and I know I would really like that one. You'll love it. It is. Yeah, I know I will. I think it's amazing. Like, I that was the first time I I ever watched a movie that is was quote-unquote a brief encounter movie. Like, I watched it before I dug into the Before trilogy, uh, and tore me to shreds. It's really fucking good. And I didn't even really care for 45 years that much when oh, I, I watched it. I love 45 it. years. I love I would like to watch that one again because I think now that I'm older, uh, I have a little bit more context and a little bit more life experience under my belt, and I might appreciate it more. But at the time, I remember thinking, oh, it's kind of just like an old person movie at the end of the day. Uh, but Charlotte Rampling is such a good actress. She's so good, dude. She's so fucking good in everything that she does. It's crazy. Who, Charlotte Rampling? She, yeah, and I just actually, yeah, because of, uh, and I might be fucking getting my facts mixed up here, but for because we were talking about Elle with Sienna, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago now, as it were, um, I was like curious to see if Paul Verhoeven was up to anything new, and I think I saw that Charlotte Rampling is going to be the lead in the next Paul Verhoeven movie. Whenever we get that, so that'll be a really cool collab. All right, 
fruitful collaboration on that one, I bet. I hope so, dude. Um, but okay, I've, I've never seen uh, Joint Security. Is it Joint Security Area? Is that what you said? Joint Security Area, yes. I've never seen that. Uh, I took a Korean cinema class in college that I think I've talked about on this show before, and it was kind of a brutal class. We didn't even watch Old Boy in the class, but I had to watch it outside of class for like my final project or whatever. But we did watch, we ended the class with The Handmaiden, and The Handmaiden fucking rocks, dude. That movie's yeah, fucking Yeah, The Handmaiden awesome. rips. I love The Handmaiden. So I would actually be very interested in seeing Joint Security Area. It sounds really cool, and I think Park Chan-wook makes some cool movies. And honestly, don't rush to old boy. That's my own personal opinion. I know people okay, love that movie. That's fair. But that's fair. I don't think you need to rush to it. You'll get there eventually. It's, oh, I don't know. Walk, don't run to old boy. That's kind of where I'm at with it, honestly. But I got my number one in, I got my number one in the bag, baby. The bag is secured for number one. Ready? Are you ready, right. Mason? We got number one. We got our number one in the chamber here. We're pointing each guns at each other in a, in a little standoff. <laughs> and it doesn't matter actually which bullet hits each other first. We're both killing each other right now, yeah. regardless. <laughs> um, so the number one movie that I is my favorite first watch of 2020 is a movie that. I really, really wish I had watched earlier on in life. It is a movie that I think had I watched it earlier on in life, it would have been a little bit of a roadmap for some things that I am interested in creatively. Because, Mason, I wish I made this movie so bad. I wish okay. that I my name was attached to this movie in some way, shape, or form, in okay. some big artistic, creative, you know, con- contributive way. Um... Because it does something that I think is so challenging. It does something, or what it does that I think is so challenging, is it is a parody of something, but at the same time is a good story. It goes over the top, but at the same time, the story that it's telling is good. And so if you told me, Mason, at the beginning of 2020 that my favorite movie would be directed by Jake Kasdan, I would have called you a fucking liar. Because my favorite movie that I watched for the first time in 2020 is Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, brother. Yes! (laughs) This is another one that I'm so surprised it took you this long to get to, but oh my god, brother. Oh, man! Oh my god. Oh, god. So it's... It's maybe my favorite comedy of all time, honestly. Like, I dude, just, it's so fucking good, it's, dude. Holy it's... shit! <sighs> oh my god! <laughs> it kind of, you know, in the per- you know who the person actually who like told me like you know you will really like this movie like you really should check this out was actually Chris Chris Shalakian. He was the one. Oh, okay. He was the one who was sort of like, you really, really need to check this out. Like, this movie fucking rips. And I know the common, like, thing about it is like, oh, it ruins the music biopic. It ruins the biopic for you. Which, like, maybe it does. You know, I don't really think it ruins a biopic because a biopic, you know what you're getting into at the end yeah, of the day. Exactly. You know what I mean? And the best biopics are the ones that you don't even really think about as biopics. Like, Ed Wood. Ed Wood's a biopic, and I just think about that as like a funny movie about a funny guy, even though it really is a biopic about the quote unquote worst director of all time. And there's yeah. another and there's a number of examples out there about biopics that are great biopics that yeah, you like don't love think and mercy. about as that way. Well, just like there's like biopics that you don't even think about in the name in the in that genre, you know, and it just is like holy shit. It's yeah, I feel like, and I feel like Walk Hard is very specifically lampooning um, Ray and and Walk the Line more than 
absolutely the genre itself. Um, and I guess maybe a little bit of I'm Not There, the Todd Haynes movie. Um, but oh my god, John C. in that movie is on another level, truly. <laughs> yes, like, yes, it's it's a um. <laughs> It's such a uh, – there's hardly a, a moment in that movie where I'm not – if busting my gut or just, like, laughing a little bit, you know? Um, oh, man. I, I – that's <laughs> – It's so hyper-specific in yeah. its comedy and so hyper-aware of the genre that it's lampooning. But you are invested, genuinely invested in the story of Dewey Cox from the And the, the music beginning. in it is really good, too. It is. It is legitimately a good movie in all stretches. I actually would just like to do a full episode about Walk Hard, uh, the Dewey Cox. Not a full episode, but like bring it on the show and do, you know, a full half hour or whatever yeah, it is man. on it. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the best comedies I've ever seen, and I don't hear enough people really talk about it. I do think because of quarantine and having it had been on Netflix sort of when quarantine was at an all-time peak, you know, in like the April May, you know, side of things. I think people are coming around to it now and seeing how good it was and seeing how, you know, subversive and intelligent and smart it is of a comedy. But only now, I think are people reappraising it as one of the best comedies of that era because you had a lot of Judd Apatow comedies come out then. You had a lot of like that yeah. kind of movie yeah. out there. That was a very oversaturated time for studio comedies. And it just sort of, I think, went unchecked because you had things like Knocked Up and you had things like Step Brothers and you had things like Role Models, you know, rolling out yeah. every other week. And I remember, because um, I was in, I think, 7th or 8th grade when that movie came out. And that was when, when I was big into watching trailers. And the trailer for Walk Hard was really not great. Like, you could tell, you knew from the trailer what it was accomplishing. And I feel like most people saw it and were like, oh, like, um. it was also, it also came out during the kind of like the, the, um, uh, what's their name? Uh, the Freiburg, uh, the, the, the epic movies, your scary movies, that kind of yeah. thing. And people were like, oh, this is just going to be one of those. But it's like the only one that like is, um, intelligent about what it's lampooning. Um, it's not just a string of like pop culture references that are irrelevant by the time the movie actually comes out. Um, and I think people were just kind of sick of it at that point. And now it's kind of gotten, um, reappraised and reappreciated and man, oh man, it, does that movie just make me so happy anytime that I think about it. Some examples of biopics that you don't really think about as biopics. I'll have a list here. This is from, this is an IndieWire article written by the playlist staff. And this list is from 2015. Just some highlights on here. Marie Antoinette. Haven't seen, not really sure if it actually is that way. Um, Sid and Nancy, uh, yeah. Ed Wood, as we mentioned. Social Network is technically oh, a biopic. True, true, true. true. Uh, and you don't think about it as one. Amadeus is a biopic, and you don't really think about it as a biopic. You sort of think about it as more of a period piece. Andre Rublev, technically a, you know, a biopic. Mishima by Paul Schrader, technically a biopic. So, you know, when you don't think you're watching a biopic are some of the best ones. Love and Mercy is also on that list. But also just fucking John C. Riley is just the fucking man, dude. I mean, is there more, besides like him and Jeff Daniels, 
is there a more versatile actor out there besides John C. Riley? I mean, truly. I don't know, man. I tr- truly not. Um, not living. I mean, my other my other thought would be like you know our boy PSH. Just because right. I think that his performance in uh, Along Came Polly is one of the greatest comedic performances of that particular era in comedy. Yeah, um, his fucking physical comedy in that is unmatched. Just the way he's giving so, up his body it's so, up. It's like, it's great that we got that, but it's so sad we didn't get anything else like that from him. Um, exactly. But dude, Dewey Cox, Walk Hard, that's my number one favorite watch for the first time of 2020, oh, 2020. That so happy. That made me so All happy. All right. Chef, polish us off here. What's the final movie we're talking about? My number one, and this was my number one because it almost made, uh, for a second, it sat in my letterbox top four before I removed it and sort of settled on my current top four. Uh, this is the one I think that had, this is a movie that I had not rock bottom expectations for, but almost no expectations for, and was really um, surprised by how much it was res- it resonated not just with me, but for the current climate. And that's the 1970s invasion of the body snatchers. I think in 77. Hell yeah. Um, 78. Yeah. It's a movie about, uh, it's, uh, I love seventies paranoid thrillers and this is kind of a seventies paranoid thriller horror movie, um, about like a, a slow societal collapse. <laughs> and sure. if there's one thing that happened this year and it, it's just, um, you know, you're watching this movie and, uh, in the first part of the movie, Bad things are happening. You're not sure what's happening, and you it doesn't seem like anyone's taking it seriously until you are forced to. Then the second part of the movie, you are with a group of characters, more or less a COVID or body snatcher bubble, um, and then one by one, um, they succumb to the weird alien thing. Um, yeah, I just um, this another this one just kind of ticked all the boxes for me, and it's just kind of like if I had to think about like. I guess when I was in the last episode, we kind of talked about like what our um, criteria was for the end of the year. And if I had to, if when I was thinking about what I wanted to make my number one for this year, it was like, what was the thing from the past that felt like it could have been a broadcast to the future? And this one struck me the strongest as um, frighteningly still relevant to, to the year of our Lord 2020. Um, it's a really frightening and strong, just horror movie, suspense movie. Um, Donald Sutherland rocks in it. Um, and it's a, it's a very like kind of foggy and cold movie about San Francisco, which you don't really associate with that particular city. I don't think. And, um, I don't know. It was maybe the biggest surprise for me this year in terms of, um, what I knew about it going into it, which was just literally the last image of the movie, which is Donald Sutherland pointing, um, and even though that was somewhat spoiled for me, um, it didn't lose its its um, efficacy. It didn't lose its its power. It didn't lose the sort of despair. Uh, it's a movie that leaves you. <laughs> it's a movie that basically leaves you with nothing as the credits roll. Like in terms of emotions, you're just like, oh fuck! Like it's it's it is just that bad. Um, and it made me really happy that I had bought it on DVD years and years and years ago, never got around to it, and also never gave away that DVD because I watched it on the Criterion channel because it was in that 70s horror um, thing that they were doing. Sure. And I'm like, great. If they ever take this movie off the channel and I want to watch it, I just have it on DVD ready to go. And, uh, yeah, it was that was um, probably in terms of <laughs> – again, I keep saying – 
Could have brought, would have loved to bring on Local Hero. That would have definitely been my number one this year. But in terms of things that um, stuck around with me and I'm happiest and would most want people to put on their list and watch if they haven't seen it yet, it would probably be Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think, 77 or 78. So, um, yeah, that's mine. I watched that movie uh, because that was actually a movie that I picked uh, for Dustin and I's little movie club that we are continuing to do. Uh, and he hates that movie. He absolutely oh, can't stand it. Dustin and I'm going to get going to spar. I'm going to beat him up next time I see him. I hope you do, dude. He's a fucking dumbass when it comes to <laughs> hating Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. And we actually watched um, the original and the remake. Uh, and oh. he really liked the original. Um, and they're both really good. They're both really good in their own different ways. Uh, Don Siegel directed the 1950s one, and it feels really fresh, actually, watching it in 2020 yeah, as I far as, like, go yeah, for it. I haven't seen the original yet. I, I I have it downloaded. I keep meaning to watch it, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. <laughs> it is a cool movie. It is. And the, you know... The connotation in that one is more Red Scare communism stuff uh, as opposed to more of a general societal breakage uh, in this 1978 remake. I think the 1978 one is scary, and I think it's thrilling, and I think it's tense, uh, and I think everyone is doing a really good job. I think the opening sequence, the opening title crawl with the like alien substance sort of coming down from space is fucking beautiful and gnarly uh, at the same time, Uh, and... It's a really fucking awesome movie. Like, it just is. It's a really, really awesome movie. Uh, Although Local Hero was ineligible for this list, I'm glad that Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1978 remake made your number one spot. It's a really good movie. And uh, I think it honestly might even be on Prime if you don't have uh, Criterion Channel. I think that's right, Um, actually. I'm going to just double check that really quick. But uh, it's not a difficult movie to find, which um, which is really kind of nice. Uh, directed by Philip Kaufman, who directed The Right Stuff, um, which is another – that was a new to me in 2018 in advance of seeing the movie um, First Man. And The Right Stuff is a really, really good movie. Uh, it have is. Have you seen The Right Stuff? Oh, no, not The Right Stuff. I'm sorry. I have not seen The Right Stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's, not on, it's not on Prime anymore. It was when I watched it. Um, but even still, it's absolutely worth you know two hours of your time or whatever it is. I think that ending sequence – uh, when Donald Sutherland is in that, like, I guess for lack of a word, better word, like farm, you know, or whatever he's in, that whole, like, ending sequence, that feels very dreamlike to me. It sort of feels like he's, like, shifting through the world, just sort of, like, trying to, like, grab onto some vestige of, you know, not hope even, but just, like, some vestige of humanity Something left. familiar. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It feels very dreamlike, and it feels very like we're just sort of shifting from place to place. There's some fun cameos in that movie as well. The cab driver uh, who's driving them toward the end of the movie is actually Don Siegel, the director of the original Body Snatchers. That's correct. Uh, and doesn't the uh, the star of the first one jump in front of the car with um, Donald Sutherland and uh, what's her name? In the, Brooke Adams. the beginning of the movie? Yeah, he does. I believe Brooke Adams is her name. Brooke Adams. Yes, um, I was gonna say and, yeah, that, Cartwright, but she's she pops up later. Um, and yeah, that's Kevin McCarthy, the star of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So, excellent pick. Very good movie, Dustin. You can eat my shit as far as not liking the remake goes. Uh, but yeah, baby, 
Lots of good movies out there, man. Lots of good movies. You yeah. can only get to so many. And to think about the ones that we couldn't even include on this list that are still just as good, uh, you know, is is awesome. So lots of movies out there to watch. Yeah, like I said, this is such a hard list to get even 15 down to just because when I charted out everything that I watched that was new this year that wasn't um, – that we didn't cover on the show. Uh, yeah, a lot, of, it's a lot of good stuff out there, folks. So – uh, if you like the show, want to get in touch with us, follow the links in the description. Shoot us an email, everybody wants to. The number two, get on the list at gmail.com. Didn't say that at the end of last week's episode, but who cares? Uh, follow me on Letterboxd, follow me on Instagram, follow me on the show, the Barn A podcast about the Shield. Uh, Noah, what about you? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, all the same shit. Uh, you can listen to my other podcast, my favorite podcast, a podcast about people's favorite things. I uh, don't know what the show's going to be that the week that this is coming out because we're recording it a little bit far in advance. So don't know who to tell you to look out for. But whoever it is, you're going to have fun. You're going to have a great time. So check it out. I don't know what it's going to be yet as we're recording this. Uh, and wish me a happy birthday. <laughs> Come yeah, on, guys. Wish me a happy birthday, everybody. Uh, it's, uh, you only turned 24 a- once, you know? Huh? You only turn 24 once. You got to fucking make it. Yes, it's true. And then once you turn 25, you can arm wrestle uh, Jack Bauer and defeat him in hand-to-hand combat. That's smart. Okay. (laughs) Take us out. All right. Black Lives Matter. Black Trans Lives Matter. Abolish. Defund the police. Uh, Fuck Donald Trump. We only have about two more weeks or three more weeks before we can say, before we have to start saying fuck Joe Biden. So going to get your your money's worth in there, folks. And uh, wish Noah a happy birthday. Tell someone you love him. We will see you all next week. Bye.